0: Well, Revelation chapter 1 began a study of this book last Wednesday night Um, and really was just an introduction, uh, an overall introduction to the book, really is all that we considered uh, from really just the first three verses. And so we considered the central message of the book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's easy. I've, I've done it. You've done it. You think of Revelation, someone says, oh, I love the book of Revelations, plural, when in reality, it's Revelation singular. Okay, this is a singular revelation, and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And someone says, well, what is the book of Revelation all about? Is it a book all about the future? Well, the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, This does involve future events, prophecy but beyond that, the more important message that's being driven home through the message of revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the last book of our Bible is a book that presents a picture of Jesus, who he is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, unlike any other book of the Bible. So tonight I want us to look, and I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3 again, but I want to work through at least verse 8. Verse 8. And verses 1 through 8 really serve as a good prologue or a preface. You know, every good book always has a preface or a prologue. Uh, In that prologue, often the the author will state his intention for writing. Uh, He'll talk about the purpose, the overall emphasis of the book that he is writing, an overview. And that's what John really does in the first several uh, verses of chapter 1. So just by way of introduction, a prologue is an opening to a story that helps establish the context and provides important background information, details. And that's precisely what the Apostle John does uh, in these verses that that I want us to read. So verse 1, the Bible says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. So, so notice there's, there's a progression here in the way that this book has been handed down to John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God the Father gave to God the Son so that God the Son could show his servants those things which are soon to take place. And then God the Son makes it known by sending his angel to John. This is the Apostle John uh, who we find out down in verse 9 he's exiled on an island called Patmos. Really he was exiled for his faith. But this is sort of the chain of inspiration that was involved in uh, the words of this prophecy. So, Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we'll stop reading there, but I want to speak from this thought tonight from John to the seven churches. Uh, John tells us here in this prologue to his book, He tells us why he's writing, the occasion of his writing, how this word came to him by way of prophetic revelation. And he's telling us really who he's writing to specifically. He's addressing the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. And so in this prologue, John is answering some questions and considerations, uh, each of which we really need to know. If we're going to embark on a study of this last book of the Bible, these are some very important questions that we need to have answered, and we'll find those answers, for the most part, in this first chapter. So again, by way of introduction, uh, the first question would be, who exactly wrote the book? Who is the author of the book? Well, both the testimony of the book itself, as well as the testimony of history, John, the disciple of Jesus the author of the gospel of john the author of 1st 2nd 3rd john uh, he also is the author of revelation this is the testimony of the book itself but it also is the testimony of a lot of the early church fathers in particular irenaeus who is a disciple of a disciple of john going all the way back early in the 1st century he had this testimony that this book was written by the apostle john so there's plenty of evidence there uh, to emphasize John as the author of this book. And then a second question, what is it that's really contained in the book? What's the overall purpose of the book itself? So the book is a written record of messages, prophecies, and visions that John personally saw and heard. And as we'll see here in just a few minutes, these visions had to do with uh, the last days. The, the wrapping up of human history as human history closes, Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And then a third question is, where is the setting of the book? Now, what's the context? What's the background? Where is it exactly that John is when he's writing this book? Is he, is he on the beach somewhere, you know, with lemonade in his hand and sitting under an umbrella? Not exactly, because we know from, again, verse 9 and also from history that John had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which was roughly 25, 30 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. It was nothing more than a rocky outcrop of the Aegean Sea, uh, uh, just a rock just jutted out of the Aegean Sea, and it was a a Roman uh, prison colony. And so John tells us down in verse 9 that he was there exiled on Patmos for the sake of his faith. History tells us that it was during the reign of Domitian. So that answers the question, when then is the date of the book? Uh, Scholarship will date the book around 95 to 96 AD under the reign of a Roman emperor by the name of Domitian. And Domitian was a bad dude. Domitian was a guy who... Uh, persecuted believers. The imperial cult of Rome really became widespread uh, during Domitian's um, tenure as emperor. And what that basically meant is he demanded worship. Domitian wanted people to refer to him as Lord and God. And so you can imagine that those early Christians, this really put them between a rock and a hard place because the cry of the New Testament church is that Jesus is Lord, not the government not the emperor, not Rome. And so much in the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar and worship his image, um, let me tell you, John is on Patmos, exiled for his faith because he refused to worship Domitian. Many other Christians in that particular time were persecuted even to the point of death. Thrown to the lions, and you've seen the stories of of, of vicious persecution. Prior to Domitian, you had Nero and his persecution of Christians. He blamed the burning of Rome on the church, basically on Christians. But Nero's persecution was pretty much limited to the capital city. Domitian comes along some years later, some 20, 25 years later, and his persecution is empire-wide, simply because. The imperial cult went mainstream. It became government policy for the empire to worship the emperor. And it was intended to sort of be a unifying thing for the state. Now, is that kind of thing ever going to happen again? Well, according to what John's going to write later on in Revelation, you're going to see how this is very much going to be the case in the last days for many of the people of God. But we'll get to that when we come to it. And then why? Why is the study of this particular book so very important? Well, again, it's to show believers things that will take place in the last days. Not simply for the sake of information, but for the purpose of transformation. So that God's people can live informed, transformed lives and be encouraged even when it seems like things are spiraling out of control in the world around us. So John is receiving this vision of things that must soon take place. And the Lord Jesus wants his servants to be well aware. That means that the message of Revelation, contrary to what so many people would say, they would say, well, you can't really understand the book. There's too much symbolism in the book. And someone says, we just need to stay away from it altogether. Well, that totally undermines the fact and ignores the fact that there's a special blessing attached to this book. And that the believer who reads this book out loud, who, who hears this book read out loud, who obeys the words of this book, there's a special blessing from the Lord uh, to that believer. And that means God wants this book to be understood. That's not to say that it's easy. But folks, let me tell you, as a believer, the author of the book has come to live within you. And I'm not talking about John. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that opens our minds to understand the Scriptures. So John was somewhere around 90 years old when he was exiled by Domitian to this prison colony colony called Patmos. And as chapter 1 later reveals, he was worshiping the Lord there one Sunday in exile when suddenly the veil that separated heaven and earth was removed and John was invited into the presence of the risen, glorified Son of God. And then he's commissioned by the Lord to write in a book the things that he had been shown. And what unfolded before the old apostles' very eyes was this dramatic series of visions that portrayed future events. Now, we talk about the future for just a second. I realize the world has certainly known its share of self-proclaimed prophets and soothsayers, okay? And for some reason, the National Enquirer has always been around, and it continues to stay in print and publication, and people still buy that mess. I don't know why. But it may have something to do with the fact that the National Enquirer, do you know that every year, the National Enquirer puts out a list of future predictions that they say are going to happen for the year ahead. They usually do this early on in January or December or something like that for the upcoming year. It's their New Year's edition. You know that, I just gotta say this, in 2019, you know what they, what they, the prediction they made for 2020 was? There's gonna be breakthrough discovery in the scientific community and great cures for diseases. And disease that's going to be less, 2020 is going to be a less, riddled year as far as disease is concerned for humanity. I kid you not. So there's this fascination with the future that's true of humanity. It's characteristic of humanity. You know you're interested in it. I'm interested in it. There's just something about it. A visit to a Chinese restaurant shows this to be the case because none of us leave without making sure we open up the fortune cookie and read it. But now listen, a lot of people approach the book of Revelation th- the same way that some folks approach a fortune cookie. Revelation is not a Christian fortune cookie. It's not a book that we come to, uh, you know, just simply so we can have this scheme of events and pinpoint dates and all this, this, that, and the other. No, again, it's given for the sake of transformation that we might be built up in our faith. You know, someone who's written a lot about prophecies, Dr. David Jeremiah. But listen to what Dr. Jeremiah said. He said, our conduct today is affected by what we know of tomorrow. And the book of Revelation tells us of God's plan for the future and assures us as God's people that we are on the winning side. And you know, very often it it appears that the enemy is winning, but Revelation is a book that puts everything in proper perspective for the people of God. Yeah, the devil may win some present battles here and there, but the outcome of the war has already been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan knows that. And folks, when we know that truth as God's people, it'll give us the courage to persevere whenever things head south in our lives when things go to pot in society. So that's why this book is so important and why we need to study it. Now let me just give you four things from these verses about the message of John to these seven churches and those seven churches are going to be um, mentioned in name in chapters two and three. Which by the way, if you want to think about just a general outline for Revelation, think about the first couple of chapters, you've got seven churches. That gives way to A scroll with seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bold judgments as the book culminates with the coming of Jesus and the wrath of God and the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ which is described in chapter 20. So John's message then is a prophetic message. Some people say, well, Revelation really is, it's an apocalyptic message. in in genre, um, which has led some to interpret it in an allegorical way, but make no mistake about it, verse 3, John is very clear that this is prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So a couple of very important words here in these opening verses. You've got the word revelation itself. Uh, That word is, the Greek word is apocalypsis. It's the word we get the word apocalypse from. I told you last week, apocalypse, we often associate it with cataclysmic events. But the actual word itself means unveiling. It's the idea of pulling back curtains so that something can be seen in its true light. And so a revelation removes the veil that obscures a person's understanding. It unravels mystery so that the meaning of something is made plain. And so mystery, mystery in the Bible often refers to something that was concealed in the past, but now it's been revealed in the light of Christ. And so as we make our way through the 22 chapters of this book, you'll find many of these mysteries made clear. Uh, Mysteries like this, why is it that evil seems to persist on the planet? What's going to be the ultimate fate of evil? Is God going to deal with it? How is he going to deal with it? You think about the mystery of godliness, how that's explained in Revelation. And and again, all of this is so that we could live a godly and righteous life in the midst of a broken world. And so this is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which means that from beginning to end, this prophetic book of the New Testament fixes our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Don't think of it simply as fixing your eyes upon the future. No, this is a book that fixes our eyes upon Jesus himself. And folks, isn't that the overall purpose of the Bible? Is to point us to God's own son? And so from beginning to end, this is a Jesus book. In the first three chapters, we see Jesus as the exalted king and priest over his church. In chapters 4 and 5, he is in heaven. He's he's the glorified Lamb of God. Chapter 6, all the way through chapter 18, he's the righteous judge over the earth. Chapter 19, he's the returning King of kings and Lord of lords. In chapters 20, 21 and 22, he's the bridegroom who escorts his bride into the heavenly city that's been prepared and so this is the revelation of Jesus Christ it's the unveiling of who he is and what he will do in the world if you don't know who Jesus is and if you want to know what he will do in the world the message of revelation is absolutely a must for you to read you've got to know this message and it will bring you such confidence in your heart and so it's prophecy prophecy So that word prophecy there in verse 3 refers to a future prediction. You think about prediction. That doesn't mean that the predictions that are made in Revelation, uh, you approach it as if it may or may not be true. It's not like forecasting the weather. You know, um, I don't know why it is that we tend to want to get so upset at, at the weatherman. I know he's a member of my church when it don't snow I mean the best and and, and let me tell you Van will tell you this as well any other person who's in meteorology the best they can do is make predictions based upon model data and patterns but they'll tell you with forecasting the weather that there are always variables any one of which can throw a predicted forecast off course so when you think about prophecy and prediction, don't think of it that's in that light as far as, if this is not weather prediction. you. this is God telling you the course that human history is going to take, simply because God has decreed it, which means it's 100 percent accurate, 100 percent of the time. Not like the weather. It kind of reminds me of a story I read about a guy who was driving through West Texas. And he happened to pass this service station out in the country. And he happened to notice there was, a, there was a rope that was dangling from a sign and above that rope, the sign said this, weather forecaster. And so the guy studied the rope for a while and he asked an old man who was sitting out front there at this service station, he said, how can a rope tell the weather? And this old cowboy replied, he said, oh, that's very simple, son. You see when that rope swings back and forth? He says, it's windy. <laughs> when the rope is wet, it's raining. When the rope is frozen and stiff, it's snowing. He said when the rope ain't there, tornado. <laughs> Listen, that's not the way Revelation predicts the future, okay? Uh, when prophecy is given in scripture it's it's given under inspiration and the authority of God himself who has decreed that it will come to pass and prophecy is something that some folks are a little bit nervous of and i get that because prophecy's been abused perhaps more so than any other genre as far as the bible's concerned but you know something at least a quarter of the bible is prophecy So that means that in our treatment of scripture, in our study of scripture, our reading of scripture, we're going to interact with prophecy and God has a very real important purpose behind that prophecy and all of it is intended to show us how he is the sovereign God and history is in his hands. Now I mentioned this just last week, I'll mention this once more, there have been historically four views as far as the prophetic nature of Revelation. Okay, and that first view, remember I gave you, it was a word, um, preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, the preterist view of Revelation that basically comes from a Latin word that means the past. Those who have held to a preterist view of Revelation sees Revelation as being already fulfilled in the past. And most likely, if a person is a preterist, they, they view the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD uh, where Roman armies destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. They see that as being really the emphasis of Revelation and everything that's mentioned in Revelation points ultimately to that event and it's all symbolic, all symbolic language, even allegorical language to describe that event. Okay, so that's the preterist view. Now here's the thing, there are some people who genuinely hold to different views as to the nature of revelation that we can have fellowship with. That's one thing about eschatology, where there, are, there is legitimate disagreements among believers uh, as to the nature of the last days. We wouldn't put that on the same uh, playing field as uh, truths such as the, you know, the, the, virgin birth or the substitutionary atonement okay but the preterist view there have been a lot of folks even perhaps from the more reformed camp who have held to a preterist view of Revelation which personally I don't believe is accurate secondly would be a historical view or the historicist view which basically sees Revelation as being Um, a panoramic sweep of church history really from the ascension of Jesus leading all the way up to the return of Jesus the person who sees Revelation from a historical perspective sees it as being just a a, a sweeping panoramic view of what has happened over the last 2,000 years of church history and what is still yet to happen as far as church history uh, yet future so that would be the historicist or the historical view. A third viewpoint would be idealist, which by the way, the historic, the, the historical view, this was the view of a lot of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther had issues with the book of Revelation, but you know, he he was he, Calvin, some of these others held historical views. Idealist, the idealist view is a view that sees Revelation as being really nothing more than allegory. It doesn't put it in any one particular location in history, but sees it as being a story, kind of like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory that illustrates timeless truths and how ultimately good is going to triumph over evil. Uh, this tends to be more of the, the, the liberal-minded view uh, who approaches Scripture oftentimes from that perspective. A fourth view, and what I really believe is the view intended by the Holy Spirit, as well as John, is the futurist view. That everything that's written in chapter 1, obviously, is something that's happened in John. He's writing it. He experienced it. As Jesus in all of his glory appeared to him there in a vision on Patmos. Chapters two and three, these seven churches were literal churches that are addressed. John's writing the letter to. But from chapter four all the way through the close of Revelation chapter 22, his uh, uh, future, and in particular the tribulation period. Uh, the tribulation is described and the circumstances on earth uh, in the last days after the rapture of the church. And so that's the futurist view. So working through Revelation, I want to approach it from that view because I do believe that this particular view is best faithful to how Scripture should be approached. You know, all of us, when we read and we study our Bible, we apply some method of interpretation whether we realize it or not. And so the method of interpretation that is the best, I think it's the historical grammatical, which basically let Scripture simply say what Scripture says. Let it say what it says. And I really believe with all of my heart that God fully intends for the message of this book to be understood by His people. That's not to say that there's not symbolic language used because there are, but I do believe that it will be plain And God intended it that it will be plain. Where there is symbolism, where there's symbolic language being used, it will be plain to the reader. Now, someone says, why so much symbolism in Revelation? One person said it this way, Skip Heitzig. I don't know if you know who Skip Heitzig is, but just been a Bible teacher around for a long time. But he said, when you think about symbolism in Revelation, he said, think of it this way. The language of symbolism is very important. First, the text of Revelation functioned like a spiritual code for the early church. Again, remember the cultural circumstances. They're they're persecuted for their faith. The Roman government fiercely persecuted those first century believers, carefully examining any documents that they confiscated. And so a Roman official reading the book of Revelation would respond, What's up with this? Makes no sense to me. But a New Testament Christian would grasp its meaning. It feels very Old Testament, and early Christians practically bathed in the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, out of 404 verses in the book, at least 360 allude to the Old Testament. First century believers understood apocalyptic literature from the Old Testament books of Daniel and Ezekiel, and so when they read this book, they got it. And then he says, secondly, the passing of time does not weaken symbolism. Ever thought about that? Just how symbols in one generation can still mean the same thing many, many generations later, because symbolism tends to transcend culture, language groups, and people groups. And in that way, it can bless people of all times. And God inspired this book to bless the church in all ages. And then, third, symbolism arouses strong emotions. And symbols create mental images that other forms of literature simply can't duplicate. So when a final world government is described in terms as being a beast, this is symbolic language, but can you feel the emotion that that symbolism is intended to convey? What is it that you're able to determine about the nature of that government when it's described in beastly characteristics? Just like Daniel's prophecy, Daniel and the visions that Daniel has given of those empires and the beastly like characteristics that the empires of man always seem to have. Cruel in nature, it's because of man's sin. When you wed power to depravity, and you have some issues. So, again, John's message then is prophetic. Now, something else here. Verse 3, John's message is profitable. It's profitable. Again, blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So there is a very special blessing associated with the book of Revelation. You read it out loud, you hear it read, you obey its message, you will be blessed indeed according to what the Apostle John says. I don't know what you think of when you think of that term blessed. A lot of people associate the term blessed with material wealth. But the word blessed means so much more than just having material things. You don't have to have material things to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed in the truest sense of the term? It means to be happy, to be fortunate, to be well off. This is an adjective used to describe the person who's been the recipient of divine favor. One person said it this way, this underlying word here, this Greek word, it doesn't express superficial sentiment, but instead the rugged, tested assurance that it's a good thing to be walking in the pathway of God's will. So you read Revelation. You obey the message. There's a blessing attached with that. And listen, it will lead you in a pathway of assurance, some confidence for your life. And folks, don't we need that, especially in these days? We need the blessing of God. We need the assurance as we're living in a world where it seems like things are spiraling into oblivion that God's got this. And that real blessing is knowing Jesus Christ And knowing that he's got the whole world in his hands. The whole world. And so really this is one of many statements of blessing that you'll find in the book of Revelation. There are seven beatitudes. The beatitudes of Revelation where this word blessed is used. It's used here in verse 3. Blessed are those who read, hear, obey the words of this prophecy. It's used in chapter 16. Blessed are those who stay alert. It's used in chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection, over whom the second death has no power. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 22. Blessed are those who heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 14 of that chapter, "Blessed are those who wash their robes and have the right to the tree of life and enter the city by the gate." So you've got these bookends of blessing, from, from all the way from chapter uh, one, verse three to chapter 22, verse 14. Book ended with the blessing of God. Number three. One thing I want you to see is that John's message is so very profound. Look at verse 4. John is addressing these seven churches, but look at this profound statement, a theological statement that he makes. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Whoa! Oh, I want to shout when I read that. So listen, this is profound. It's profound for the sake of theology. You'll notice this is a Trinitarian greeting. The language of the triune nature of God uh, used in this address to these seven churches. So there's a theological statement being made here. This has something to say about who God is. You know the Bible says there's one God and he eternally exists in three persons, his Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These three are one. So God the Father is referenced there from him who is, who was, who is to come. And the language here goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 where the Lord God appears to Moses and and, and reveals his name to Moses. In the name of God, I am the the I am. The self-existent one. The one who's timeless. Age to age he stands. Time is in his hands. This is the God to whom we worship, we bow. God the Father. And then God the Holy Spirit. Notice that phrase, from the seven spirits who were before his throne. Now that may seem like a strange reference. But seven is a number, a symbolic number in Revelation that's associated with fullness. And so this is a description of the manifold wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And more than likely, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit is described as being the Spirit of the Lord, number one, He's the spirit of wisdom, number two. The spirit of understanding, number three. The spirit of counsel, four. The spirit of might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven. So when John is referring to the seven spirits before the throne, it's a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now let me tell you something, men and women, in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you have been given the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. You didn't get God on the installment plan. No, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God gave you all of himself. And and, and then the Christian life is you learning what it means to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as as he gets more and more and more and more of you throughout your Christian experience. So God the Father is referenced here. God the Son, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings on earth. Now look at those three statements that are made about God the Son. He's the faithful witness. The word here, uh, we get the word martyr from in Greek, the Greek word that's used there. That Jesus is the faithful witness means he is the one who always speaks the truth. In fact, Jesus said this much in John 18, 37, for this I have been born, for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So as the faithful witness, he's the one who has revealed truth. He is truth incarnate. Firstborn from the dead, that means he's the one who died, but he is the one who has secured a better resurrection for his people because he's one who is preeminent over death. And he is the ruler of the kings of earth. This depicts God the Son as the sovereign Lord over the affairs of this world to which he ultimately holds the title deed. John's going to be given a symbolic glimpse of the title deed to the earth once we get into chapters 4 and 5. And who is it that, that is worthy to be able to open the scroll? John says it's the Lamb of God. He's the one who's worthy. Wow. So this is good for theology. I'll tell you something else this is good for. It's good for doxology. Worship. You go on and look at what John says in verses five and six. He, he really just expresses uh, worship. It's a statement of worship. It's a statement of praise and rejoicing. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. The idea is he has freed you. We were slaves sold on the, uh, the auction block to sin. Jesus Christ has come and redeemed us. And what price is it that he paid? It was his own blood. And he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So now, we were in darkness, without hope, without God in the world. Paul says in Colossians that we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and we've been made citizens of the kingdom of light. We're a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests represent God to people and represent people to God. God intends for his church to have a mission. So this speaks of the present mission then of the church, the fact that we are a kingdom of priests pointing the world of humanity to the one true God. So no wonder John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. This is a statement of worship. Revelation ought to get you worshiping unlike any other book in the Bible that you read. One final thing John's message is purposeful it's purposeful what's the purpose? well the purpose is to communicate this sense of urgency that Jesus is coming again and the first reference to the second coming of Jesus in the book of Revelation is there in verse number 7 behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him So he is our returning king. Our returning king. Revelation presents us with a wonderful picture of our returning king. And when he comes again, men and women, he's not going to be coming in humility, he's not going to be coming by way of Bethlehem stable. He's not going to be coming by means of humble birth and nativity. The next time he comes, he's going to be coming in all of his pomp, and all of his majesty, in all of his glory. And the Bible says, on that day, every eye will see him. He's going to be coming with clouds. <laughs> in fact, John is referring to two Old Testament passages here. One ought to be familiar to you, Daniel chapter 7. Remember the night vision that Daniel had? He said, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this idea of him coming with clouds, clouds are often associated with the glory of God in Scripture. Jesus is coming in great glory. A second passage from the Old Testament John is referring to is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where the prophet says, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, so that when they look on me, The one whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So John sees both of those Old Testament prophetic passages as being fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus, in the second coming of the Lord Jesus to establish his kingdom. So he's our returning king. Verse 8 reminds us that he is our reigning king. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is, who was and who is to come the Almighty now the same thing said of Jesus Christ in chapter 22 verse 13 said of God the Father here in the first few verses of the book but also said of God the Son and the idea is He's eternal the Alpha and the Omega you know, we're all speaking Greek now with this Delta variant that's going on right and I guess they're going to go all the way through the line. I mean, if there's very, I think there are 24 letters, if I'm not mistaken, in the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first letter. Omega is the last. When God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, it doesn't mean he's not everything in between. It just means he's the beginning, he's the end. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega. He is the eternal one. He is the one who's got this. That's what John is saying there. Man, what an awesome God we serve, folks. Aren't you grateful that you know him and that he knows you? And so Revelation, it's just going to show us how one of these days, man's day is going to come to an end and the day of the Lord will come. We dealt with that a little bit this past Sunday morning from Amos chapter 5. So just imagine yourself, you're an eavesdropper there on the Isle of Patmos and you're watching John perhaps as he in, he's interacting with the Lord in this majestic vision. You know what history says? History says John didn't die on Patmos even though he's well on up in years. He's probably 90 years of age or more. But tradition says that John returned to Ephesus where he lived out his remaining days. And there's a beautiful tradition from church history that says shortly before John died, fellow believers would carry him in a chair through the streets. And everywhere he would go, he would have his hands raised and he would smile and he would say to the crowds as he made his way, little children love one another. Little children love one another. The harsh experiences of Patmos didn't fill him with bitterness Because beyond the the physical, tangible experience of being on Patmos, there was a spiritual experience that lifted him far above it. Are y'all tracking with me tonight? We deal with some junk in the Christian life, don't we? We deal with some junk. We deal with some junk in the church. You deal with junk in your personal life, don't you? You're dealing with some stuff. And at times you may feel like you're exiled on your own lonely Patmos. Don't think God don't know where you are. And it's often in those Patmos experiences, man, that's where he wants to give us the greatest vision of himself. That's just a good word. Let's stand, let's pray. Oh. Oh, folks, listen, we need to be encouraged tonight, be encouraged tonight by this remarkable, remarkable revelation from God that John received. He was in a place of complete isolation. And if you feel that you've been shut up in a prison in your mind or experienced circumstance, then listen, oh, God help us to lift our eyes beyond the circumstances of this life. And get our eyes firmly fixed on the Christ of Revelation. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, this prophetic book of the Bible, this practical book. Lord, this book where there's a special promise attached for the one who hears it read, who reads it, who obeys it. Lord, this profound book that teaches us majestic truth about who our God is as you reveal yourself, Lord. But this very purposeful book to remind us that the way things are, they're not always going to be this way because Jesus Christ is our returning king and Jesus Christ is our ruling and reigning king. And Lord, may the truth of this encourage us as we live, as we put one foot in front of the other day in and day out. As we go to work, as we go to school, as we carry out responsibilities in our homes and Lord, as we live out the sense of calling that you've placed on our life, Lord, revelation points our eyes ultimately to Jesus Christ, the Christ of revelation. And he is the one who is our strength. So Lord, as we go from here, thank you for our time tonight. God bless us throughout the rest of the week. Give us opportunity to to speak of you to others. And we'll pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.